We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. My name is Jari Bolander. Welcome to the Entrepreneur Ethos Podcast. On this podcast, we're going to take a deep dive into the traits, values, beliefs, and skills of all sorts of entrepreneurs to learn how to build a more ethical, inclusive, and resilient world. Let's get started. Hello, everyone. As usual, stay tuned to the end of the interview, where I'll give you some actionable insights that I learned from my guest. These insights are also in the show notes, and all of the show notes are over at theentrepreneurethos.com. As always, thanks for listening. Thanks for the awesome ratings and reviews. Thanks for the retweets. Thanks for the shares on LinkedIn. Thanks for the emails. Just, you know, thanks for everything. (laughs) Now, on to my guest for today, Louise Carnahan, an expert on workplace communications and author of the forthcoming book, Work Jerks, How to Cope with Difficult Bosses and Colleagues. Louise came of age in the Mad Men era when options for women were limited. Interested in what makes people tick, she majored in psychology and graduated from college intending to work with children with autism in an institution. But beginning a pattern she would encounter again and again throughout her life, she had to go in another direction. She moved to Seattle from California, taking a job as a waitress and eventually earning a master's. Her career trajectory took another turn when she was again shut out from doing what she intended. But she took a job with a team that was training school staff to work with developmentally delayed children. Through this work, she found her calling in helping teams work together more effectively. From there, Louise went on to work at a hospital and eventually started her own business. When the recession shit hit, sorry, she turned back to being an employee, getting hired in her late 50s, but continuing to grow her skills in helping people work together and communicate more effectively. Louise's book helps people work with difficult supervisors and coworkers by encouraging them to focus on their own behavior and communication skills. She also talks about the importance of understanding cultural differences, whether those differences are caused by work environment or identity, and how we can all handle our own inner quote-unquote jerks. Now, let's get better together. Louise Carnahan. Welcome to the podcast. 
Thank you for having me. Well, thank you for being on. We actually had to move this because I had to go do something. So I appreciate your helping me, you know, kind of move this all around. You are also part of She Writes Press. We can't say enough good things about Brooke and the team over there. We love them. Gush, 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 gush. Yes. <laughs> They're so awesome. Um, you are the upcoming author of the book Work Jerks, which is coming out in June of 2022. We are recording this in February of 2022. What an awesome idea. What an awesome book. Cannot wait to read this. The reason why I'm an entrepreneur is because I'm absolutely 100% unmanageable. <laughs> and so... <laughs> And part of the, you know, what you say in your subtitle about colleagues and bosses, I just can't wait to talk about. But before we get into all of that stuff, like I always like to say, tell us how you got to do what you're doing today. Well, there are kind of two paths to that question. So one has to do with how I got interested in what makes people tick, which I think I've been interested in since I was an infant. Um, And then the other is how I couldn't keep a consistent job. And so how I went from being employed to being self-employed to being um, employed again and being self-employed again and now being an author. So I've been all over the place. Um, You know, I grew up during the Mad Men era and a lot of things were off the table for girls then. So I wanted to be an astronaut. That wasn't exactly encouraged. (laughs) (laughs) which is probably just as well because I actually know very little about science other than things I want to know about. I wouldn't be able to be a scientist, I don't think, although I would love to be because I'm fascinated by their work. Um, So I got introduced to psychology in high school. And I was that kid who was sitting in the library reading psychology today, you know, when I was 16 and 17, (laughs) because I was just curious, why do people do what they do? And uh, I went on to get a degree in psychology. I wanted to be an English major, but I couldn't read fast enough to get through my Dickens class. So I decided I'd go with psychology, which seemed to be easier for me. Anyway, um, so it was in college that I got pretty interested in behaviorism because there were new things coming out. I mean, if you think back on all the change that's happened, since I went to college. This was kind of the dark ages of behaviorism. Um, But I was fascinated by how it was being applied in working with children who had autism, because nothing had been done up to that point. And it was a whole emerging field. I found it fascinating. I wanted to be a therapist. I thought I was going to graduate with my degree in psychology and go to work in a state institution. I was living in California. Well, the governor, who was Governor Reagan at the time, closed the institutions. Oh, yeah. So that was my first job that went out the window. Yeah, <laughs> I know? think I think good old uh, the Gipper. Um, mm-hmm. I think a lot of people trace the origins of the problems with homelessness back right to here. that point. Yep. Fair, yep. not fair. Stuff got really squirrely after that. Well, it did. And it took a lot of years for it to evolve, right? But And now we're looking at full systems that just don't function. No. So there were plenty of problems with institutions. I'm not going to say they were a panacea. But 
they did serve a function in society. And at any rate, they went away. So I took my psychology degree and I went to Seattle and I was a waitress in a train themed restaurant. That's what I did with my bachelor's degree. <laughs> my family was so proud. So, <laughs> so I was actually aiming to be a therapist. That was my idea. And uh, this is kind of a theme throughout my career is either a recession derailed what I thought I was going to do or uh, doors just kind of closed and I ended up going in a different direction. Or I took the advice of somebody that I barely knew. And in this case, I took the advice of the roommate of my roommate's boyfriend. So he said to me, he had a master's in psychology, and he said, you know, if you want to be a therapist, you should go get a master's in social work because you can start being a therapist right away. And I was like, oh, well, okay, <laughs> you know, because a PhD in psychology was going to take a long time. So I moved to Seattle. I was waitressing and I was getting my residency so that I could get in-state tuition, went to school, got my master's of social work. And then we were in a recession again. So the job I thought it was going to take, which was with a state institution for kids who had behavioral problems, evaporated. So here we were again. <laughs> I did not go back to waitressing, though I kept those shoes for years because I wasn't sure this whole social work thing was going to work out. But I got lucky because my first break was getting a job with this extraordinary team. And they did outreach from the University of Washington to the whammy states, Washington, Alaska, Montana, Idaho. Uh, although we also had a contract in Louisiana and one in New Mexico. That I don't know why. Um, so whatever. Um, I got to work with these extraordinary people. And I love a team is the thing. I love a team. We were passionate, you know, so my first real job was this mission driven group where we were going to go save the world. You know, we were out in these schools and institutions helping to train these school people who had never really had to work together before to serve severely developmentally disabled kids. So this was in the aftermath of the Education for All Act, which was an amazing thing to have passed in this country. Who who, who passed it? What president was that? Well, now that's oh. a great question, Jerry. <laughs> <laughs> that's a great question. It was after Reagan, I'm assuming. Or? Yeah. So okay. now we're talking right around, I think the Education for All Act may have been passed in 78. Oh, so before. Okay. Okay. Got so, it. Yeah. Ish. Uh, I'm, uh, I'm a little fuzzy on that. I was in Washington state. We kind of were at the forefront on that pretty early. So um, it was a really exciting time. You know, we were young, we were enthusiastic. I was the only social worker on the team and my job was to help uh, train other social workers, well, there weren't any, right? So I'm out in the field in these schools and there aren't other social workers. And now I'm training um, teachers who already have a job. 
and trying to train them how to work with the families of the kids that they've got. And, you know, it occurred to me, they don't have time for this. I mean, they were very nice to me. I met some great people. They went through training with me. But the thing was, they had a job. So I started really focusing on teamwork. That was my thing, was helping these teams communicate better. And I've often said, if I'd known I was going to teach communication skills my entire career, I would pay closer attention when I was in school. But as it was, I got to do this over and over and over again, and I kind of love it. So that was the turning point for me. I wasn't going to go back to clinical social work. I was into workplace. I like what happens with adults at work. I find it fascinating. And I love helping to build a team. And here I was on this extraordinary team. So it was kind of a perfect match. And then the grant money ran out. Seems, seems to be a theme here. <laughs> I, guess, theme. <laughs> I guess you just need to let me know your next career move so I know what not to do. <laughs> right? <laughs> I'm the same way. I've, I've, it's, it's a yeah, long story. You, yeah. you think of that Roomba that hits the wall and then goes, yeah. uh-huh. Uh-huh. <laughs> we're going somewhere else now. Uh-huh. Exactly. So, um, so I had a roommate who was working in as a social worker in healthcare. And, uh, and I thought, you know, this whole government thing isn't working really well. So why don't I go work in a hospital in an education department? Because I know this teamwork stuff, you know, I've been working at it. And I'd also trained in like stress management techniques, which are very behavioral, and also cognitive behavior therapy, and all those things were kind of, you know, working nicely for how I might be able to add value in um, a hospital. So I went to work at a hospital with a part-time job and then a full-time job. And I really learned a ton in that environment. And I love that environment. There is nothing that makes me happier than working with people who are doing important work socially. It just, you know, it makes my heart sing. I'm an old social worker, right? What can we say? I mean, that's my thing. Well, I mean, one of the things that I'll just want to mention is, you know, when my wife, Jane, was going through the leukemia treatments, um, it's interesting because they have social workers on staff and there's a reason, okay? Yep. Doctors, to doctors, you're a meat puppet, honestly, you're puzzle to solve, meat puzzle. The nurses are better, but the uh, the amount of like absolute, I mean, it was so like, you see people die all the time, like there's no space for that. And when, you know, the social workers were the ones that would actually like level down and like really understand, like, these are the needs you have. And in my new book or the book that's coming out next year, I have a scene with a social worker that's probably the best thing I've ever written in my life. It's just was this transformational thing. I wish I could actually reach out to her because I, it's all this, they won't let me contact. I don't know. One day I'll figure it out, but was transformational during this extremely, extremely tough time. The care, consideration, the compassion to have us like work through what we had to work through was just, again, that's a whole chapter in a book about it. (laughs) So so glad you had the experience with a social worker who was so helpful to you because what you're mentioning really, you know, oh, and and Jane. Yeah. I mean, the, the two of you were able to work through this together Because those huge moments, they're breakthrough moments in a life, right? Yeah. No matter what happens next, it's like 
everybody, everything I thought I was up to this point has now just changed. And, you know, I mean, we have a lot of those moments in a lifetime. Yeah. But you need a guide. Yeah, that was. Yeah, because (laughs) before that scene in chapter, there was another interaction with a social worker that did not go well because Jane was really upset. <laughs> and uh, and I won't ruin it because everyone should read it when it comes out, like they should read your book when it comes out. Um, but I, I, it, it's so interesting that you bring this up and that you have a background in social work and these team dynamic, because I never realized this until you get in like the organs of a system, like, you know, and it's just like, it's just chaos, right? Each there's one, there's a reason why the roles are there Two, each one plays a critical role in combining the team together for cohesion. And in the particular case of a hospital, like their jobs to cure the patient, like as best they can. And of course, sometimes they don't do it. It must be, um, <laughs> you know, your book about work jerks, <laughs> like tell me how that came about. Because I mean, you're, it sounds like you're working with some like salt of the earth people. Unfortunately, some of them could be jerks. We all know that. Um, but I'm curious how that kind of manifested itself, you know? Right. Well, <laughs> so one of the things that you get from a social work training, and it's not the only place you can get this, because I think, you know, you're an engineer, so you've got it too, is you see systems, you understand that systems interact with each other. And that one of the differences between psychology and social work is psychology is really usually focused on the individual and social work looks at the system that the individuals are in. So I find that fascinating and it makes a lot of sense to me. I mean, it's just one of those things that when I got it, it was like, of course. Yeah, it makes a ton (laughs) of sense. Yeah, of course. So, yeah, what you're describing in that medical setting is when you've got a team, a system that can really trust each other to do their jobs, then it's pretty amazing what gets done, right? But we are individual people who show up every day with our quirky little selves and a whole host of stuff going on outside of work, (laughs) and we're bringing it all in. People are messy is what you're trying to say. People are messy. (laughs) People are messy. I'm unmanageable too. (laughs) You know? That's why I'm an entrepreneur for sure. Most of us are unmanageable. Yeah, that's also you true. know, we want to work on things that give us, you know, um, stimulation and joy and where we can contribute and use our expertise and be valued and where people respect us. And there are just so many places where that can fall off the, the rails mm-hmm. because we're interacting with other people. So, you know, the way I put it is I wouldn't have had a career if people had behaved well. Um, So (laughs) I had the opportunity to work with tons of people who are asking the question, how can I be more effective? You know, because my interactions with somebody aren't going well. And usually it started with and it's their fault. But what we know is we can't really change anybody else. It's hard enough to change ourselves. So a lot of the work, even in work jerks, is about what do you do 
that either promotes this kind of interaction that you're not enjoying or could make it better. Hmm. And, you know, you can, you can try asking for somebody to change and maybe they will if they, if they want to, (laughs) if it serves them, if they care about you enough. Um, But I felt like my contribution could be at work. That's those are the examples that I use, but obviously people are people are people. So you can take all the same stuff and apply it in your personal life. Yeah. And we've all been jerks. (laughs) Yes. Uh, We've all been jerks. Guilty as charged. Yes. Didn't mean to be, but of course we all have bad days. Well, we do. Or a bad moment, Mm. you know, and we need to know how to get those. So true. um, Both for ourselves, but also in interacting with other people. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, especially in high stakes teams, lots of stress. I mean, entrepreneurship, uh, I mean, you know, I always say we're the creatives of the business world and, you know, we create something from nothing, like an author. People think we're nuts. Like what? Are people are actually going to buy that. You're like, I don't know yet, but I'm willing to give it a try. And in, in those high stakes, well, at least relatively high stakes. I mean, clearly there's other high stakes things that are much worse, like you know, life, limb, or property, right? Like that's a little bit higher stakes than failing as an entrepreneur. Um, The dynamic of the team and how well they interact and how to cope with those difficult situations. I like the thought process of starting with you internally. You know, it's like, well, how can I make this better? Which, you know, let's face it, some narcissistic, sociopath, psychopathic, a-hole who doesn't really care about anyone except themselves, not going to change. Yeah, pretty sure. You already got that. <laughs> pretty sure not going to change. I mean, I don't know if you've read the book, The No Asshole Rule from yeah, a professor over at Stanford. I forget his name off the top yeah. of my head. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Transformative book because it was like, yeah, that's, yeah, that's a good, that's a really good rule. And yet sometimes we can be little jerks. How do we handle that? We have the internal, as you mentioned, but, and I guess maybe if everyone, well, actually, how do we handle that? I'll let you, I'll let you answer this. How how do we handle that internal jerk inside us? Yeah. Well, it has to do with self-awareness, right? So um, emotional intelligence is something that is a pretty common term now. People understand that it has something to do with what I know about myself. Right, right. And it's really kind of two components. It's how well do I manage myself, but then how well do I manage interactions with other people? So, you know, you could be doing just fine with yourself, but really have gritchy, icky interactions with others or to be clueless to the the context. Mm-hmm. Um, in fact, I just wrote um, or contributed to an article that looked at that with a guy who went totally off the rails at the media. Well, not a good idea, right? <laughs> because that's yeah. the stuff of memes. I mean, yeah. Yeah, now as, he's gone viral yeah. for a really bad reason. Yeah, as a PR professional, bad idea. I mean you know, they say all media is good media. All no, <laughs> no, 
No, maybe five years from now, if you're running for office and somebody remembers your name, but but that's not what we're talking not about. Not for that. <laughs> yeah, not this. This, yeah. So it's like, well, what happened there, right? right. What happened? And and the first thing has to do with, with really a stress response, mm. which is your rational brain just got hijacked and you are into your uh, lizard brain, you know, you're into the amygdala and you have gone straight to fight. Um, so it would have been better if it was flight, but it wasn't, um, you know, and you can interrupt, but the, the problem with that is it's so physical, right? You've, I mean, I've had that experience where you're just taken over and unfortunately your mouth is going and your brain has left the station and it's not good. It ends up causing lots of problems. So, you know, if you know what the things are that trigger you and get you upset, then you have a fighting chance of interrupting. Um, and the interruption first is to take a few deep breaths. It's really the only thing at that moment, other than big muscle movement, but I'm not encouraging people to punch anyone, right? Or do like you know, run. 10, 10, 10 air squats or 10 pushups. <laughs> Well, oh. that might that might work. Well, no, you're like you're. Not, can you imagine middle of a press conference? You're like, hold on, I need to do some push-ups. <laughs> I mean, maybe one day I'll try that just to like throw people off. But yeah, I need to unhijack my amygdala. <laughs> yeah, excuse me, just a moment. You can go press a wall. You know, yeah. anything that that kind of releases that adrenaline push yes. you just got. A dump. But yeah, adrenaline in most dump, business yeah. situations, anyway. Uh, you're not going to run the, the track. You're going to take a few deep breaths and come back into your body at least long enough to be able to say, I need a minute mm. or we're done now, which we've seen people do this right in a news conference mm -hmm. when they're starting to go there. You've probably counseled people. Oh, that I mean, that media, media, yeah. There, yeah. Yeah. Our and part of our, know. part of what we sometimes do is, you know, media training. Right. And, 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 and you know, famous for famous people, but I mean, even for like CEOs and stuff and authors. Right. And yeah, like it, it seems obvious, but the thing about a high stress situation is you never rise to the occasion. You always fall to your training, like without fail with, I mean, I have seen this so many times. I mean, I even do it sometimes I have to like, I'm a professional. Right. And so I love the fact that you're like, Oh, well, look, know what sets you off train yourself to not be set off. If you can't do that, it is perfectly acceptable to pull the ripcord and say, we're done and walk away. And you see this, you're right all the time. And I would highly, highly recommend that. Don't in the moment is the worst possible time to make a comment. that's going to go. I could just like, I remember I re once I'll just say this one story. I was working, I was volunteer for then supervisor candidate, London Breed, who is now mayor of San Francisco. She was running for supervisor district five. That's how San Francisco was organized. And my job was to help her and, you know, like strategic communications and stuff. And uh, she would go to all these like democratic party, you know, like these clubs, I'm sure they have them in Seattle, you know, like they, these political clubs, right? So she's going to this one political club and I think it was, I think it was a Harvey Milk Democratic Club. I think, I don't remember exactly. And she gets there late 
because she, and she said, I'm going to be there late, you know, and I'm saying, and it just went horribly, not great for her during the whole thing. Right? So she's leaving, she's leaving. And a reporter comes up to her and says, and this is what set her up. She says, uh, looks like Willie Brown's got two girls in this fight because it was Willie Brown was, she knew Willie Brown. And then um, another candidate, the same. And she just went off the rails. <laughs> and she said four letter words that you weren't, shouldn't have said. And she was pissed. And I'm right next to her. Right. And I literally am. Tr- I am not kidding. I'm trying to grab her. We need to go. And she is just laying into this guy. I forgot his name. I don't remember, but I think it meant, I think his first name was Luke. Anyway, laid into him like everything you could visceral <laughs> and it went all over the news it was just this and she's just like you know she i apologized you know afterwards because oh you know people shouldn't hear those words from elected officials but what was interesting is that was the turning point of the campaign um because people really worried about that particular thing but boy the time she was hijacked like no all right i can't i can't say this this is like we're done you're right well you know sometimes just to hitchhike on that for a second it can potentially work in your favor if what set you off is something that a lot of people value with you yes yes and calling me a girl is probably gonna get a lot of people (laughs) saying I'm up for what she said. That was fun. Yeah, yeah. You know, but in yes. this case, <laughs> yeah. no, and I've, I've been with people where you're like, no, no, <laughs> no, no. But I've been that person too. Oh, yeah. Like, you know, yeah, I've seen of stupid stuff. All the time. You know, it's, it's how visible are you at that moment and how much damage did you do to the relationship? So if we come back to, you know, the microcosm of a workplace and a team, and you just laid into somebody because you had just a crappy morning. One thing after another went wrong. And these days, a lot of people are having bad mornings. You know, you think you're sending your kids to school and guess what? School's closed and they got to stay home. Now what are you going to do? Right. You had a big presentation. You can't show up. You know, I mean, all these things happen to people. They have lives. And then they come in and somebody says, well, nice of you to show up. <laughs> oh, right yeah. it's like you have no idea what oh yeah to yeah get here. you no idea that's that's a horrible thing to say yeah but this other person thinks they're being funny yeah right so we can yes. mismatch on a million different levels it's almost a miracle we communicate at all but the thing is when we know there's certain triggers that set us off and we're not going to know all of them. We just can't. We're human. But there's certain ones you know are probably going to set you off. Then, as you say, you go to your preparation. You go to your training. And in the case of somebody who flies off the handle, and I've, I've coached some people like that, who have really extreme reactions. Um, in fact, one guy, I think I write about him in the book, only I, I morph things, you know, because I have to. Um, but he was big, you know, a tall, big man. 
And he happened to work with a lot of little women, physically petite women. And he would blow up and, you know, do his whole thing. I mean, the language wasn't great. The voice tone was terrible. His volume wasn't good. And physically, he's intimidating. So you're not going to believe this, or maybe you will, because you've done a lot of coaching of people for, for media. It's pretty easy to get somebody to replicate their stress reaction if you sit down and role play with them. And I put them on camera. And, you know, most people say, oh, you're not going to, you know, I'll be too polite. Well, no, I, I, well, I can be really irritating. I sit them over there. <laughs> That's a. <laughs> I love that. I love that. Well, I'm an improv actor, right? Oh, I didn't know. That's great. Improv's awesome. That's also part of my trade. So I come in there and I know how to play this irritating person because he's told me what sets him up, you know? Right. right. And I do it. And he just (laughs) goes off the deep end. Goes apoplectic, yeah. So I played it back and he looked at it and he was horrified. He had no idea. What it was like for other people. That's that intelli- emotional intelligence about awareness of how you're out there, not just what's going on inside. Yeah. God, what a great, that's such a great. Do you think that that's the, some of the origins of mansplaining too? Could well be. I mean, we do, we do a lot of what we do because it's meeting a need for us. Ah, true. Right. true. <laughs> so I, true. I, I don't know what about mansplaining, but it may be I need to show you I'm smart hmm. more than I need to show you you're dumb. But it doesn't come across well. <laughs> it comes across as you think I'm an idiot. Yeah. And I think, well, to your point about the aggression, right? Like, you know, I'm a, you know, I'm six, six, one, almost six, one, two twenty. Like I'm a big guy, right? Like, and you know, it, it's interesting that you mention how physicality, tone, and how you show up. Because, you know, let's take the opposite. Let's say someone else is like getting out of control, and we're, you know, they're going to see me differently than they're going to see some petite woman or a petite person in general. Because it's a, they're not as afraid, I think. Because there's definitely a visceral reaction to, Especially like, so if you're, if you're like, have the, like a a man in that case, like your thought process when it gets hijacked and and women do this too, but generally there's a male trait is like, they're looking for the attacker and how to like, it's, it's this fight mechanism, but it's fight because I can dominate this through physicality, through voice, hands or whatever. And it's a very different experience if that person's not in the room. So I am curious how that balance goes. You know what I mean? Because I think like what your client does generally, right? Because, you know, I talked, we talked with, uh, I talked with Lucinda a little bit about this too. uh, Right. Who wrote the um, wonderful book. Just a girl. Just a girl, right? Just fascinating about how she's got this whole, um, you know, it's just such so fascinating, right? This is something I'm very interested in because I really think that the workplace dynamic and being a little more kind and compassionate to each other and really seeing it from the other side, and this is not like your lived experiences one place, but 
like we show up in a way and we're a victim or a, we're, you know, our circumstances, wherever we grew up or however we grew up, you know, like culture pays a lot of it. You may think that's okay, <laughs> which it's not for some people, but for your bros at, you know, around the, you know, playing whatever sport you do, or like, you know, I do combat sports perfectly acceptable because you're around people that get that. It doesn't mean that's acceptable everywhere. So that's right. And, and, you know, we have a lot of pecking order too. Ah, that's a good point. Yeah. When we talk about culture, and I'm really glad you brought up that word because there's the culture of the workplace. And then we have our, our larger, larger societal culture where if a woman said some of the things a man said, they get labeled with a whole slew of other labels than a man would. And then we start looking at race and we look at age. So, you know, and cultures, multicultural workforces, right? So we have people from all over the world together and they have differences. So let me, can I give you an example? Of course. Yeah. Go ahead. So this is, um, I had the the joy. Um, so when we last left off, I was at a hospital. I had a career as a, my own um, business, and I had a partnership for seven years. But for twenty three years, I had a business. Then there came another recession. <laughs> we'll get back to that. This is just like the story of your life here. <laughs> we go around and around, right? We do. We do. Yeah, we go we another do. recession, and then I ended up working again. At you know, I was pretty old to be getting a job. Um, and I felt like maybe nobody would want to hire somebody who's 56 years old um, and who hasn't been in the workforce. I mean, I've been in the workforce, but I haven't been an employee. Mm -hmm. The last time I'd left a job, we didn't have computers on our desks, right? So I'd never been networked to anybody. (laughs) I was using a computer, but you asked me to look on Outlook calendar and book something. I'm like, what? (laughs) I've never done it. So I think they must have thought, oh, my God, who'd we hire here? Although they've been a client of mine. So they knew I had some skills. Right, right. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And and I was fortunate enough to work with so many people from around the world. And one group of people that I had the joy of working with when they came over for uh, training in the summers were people from Uganda. Mm. And that's where I really learned the difference between <clears throat> what the word yes means around the world. Mm-hmm. So we're very direct mm-hmm. in our communication. <clears throat> we expect people to just spit it out. Mm-hmm. And we're aggressive in comparison to many countries. Not all, but many. I think I think we're probably behind the Germans and the Dutch, but not by much. <laughs> just a, just a hair. I mean, even the even the English are a little more cordial. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So so one of the things that <clears throat> that's talked about is a high context culture mm-hmm. where you read things, you notice mm-hmm. things mm-hmm. that we don't notice. Hmm. And uh, so voice tone, obviously, yeah, would have a lot to do with a yes, as well as the context of when it was said, how it was said, and to whom it was said. Hmm. So if I am 
by stature higher than you. And I ask of you in the US, would you do this for me? And you say yes, then I assume you're going to do it. Mm. We assume that with people all over the world who are working with us. Right. And so if I'm paying the bills for this contract that's in Africa, I assume that when that person says yes, they're actually going to deliver. But what I have missed was all the context that went around that because the only answer they could give was yes. Right. Even though it was either on the scale of not really going to happen to maybe to, well, we'll see, right? All the way up to what we consider to be an affirmative response. Right. So we can't make these assumptions and we do make them all the time. So I'm using a pretty extreme example I mean, that's not, I mean, Japanese are the same way in some cases. So we, we look at communication and what people are saying and what's behind the communication. I mean, a lot of it has to do with what's the culture you're setting up in your organization that people can actually tell you the truth and not be afraid of being punished for the truth. Because as that boss who's been told yes, and it doesn't get delivered, I much rather would have you say, I can't deliver it by then. And this is what I need to get it done. Because now we have something to work with. Yeah. I think bosses are in a bubble. And depend, yeah, depending on the type of boss you are, leader, whatever, you build the bubble. And you build the bubble by what you say and what you tolerate and how you say it. You are so right about that. And I am always of the opinion, I had to learn this the hard way. This is like many bricks in the face, <laughs> many bricks in the face, as I like to say. Um, once you realize you have no control over your people, then you start to realize I have to persuade each and every one of them in a way that they're going to do what I would want them to do, not tell them what to do. We have to be part of a team. And so the communication changes. Yes from more of dictatorial to more persuasive, at least in my experience. Once you realize that and that you build the bubble around yourself, then you sort of start to see that people don't necessarily tell you the truth. And depending on how you handle that, who you are, how you talk to people, you will be shocked that stuff doesn't get done or people won't tell you things. I mean. I worked at a company where the culture was very male dominant, masculine, four letter acronyms, every other word. It was like, it was literally like working on a Navy ship. <laughs> it was pretty, pretty awful. Uh, culture was very high t- t- testosterone, testosterone, sorry, in your face. And they were like, we're not politicians. We just were meritocracy, right? Which Anyone, anyone says that's almost bullshit, to be honest, because it's not. It's There's always a mix of politics. Right. And that culture was, if you missed a schedule, you were penalized heavily. You had to go in front of the CEO and say, this is how I missed it. And it was these were horrible meetings. They were called RCCA meetings, Root Cause Corrective Action. Any of my Cyprus friends out there will recognize this and probably the bile in your stomach's going right up into your throat <laughs> and you're about to puke when I tell you this, right? 
Well, you know, 90% of every project was late every time. Like clearly something's wrong. <laughs> like don't be a genius. Right. But no one wanted to ever hear the truth. So no one would tell the truth until you absolutely had to. Like literally, you know, it's all fun and games till the deadline passes, right? And it was just this constant struggle. And you're right. It was because that's what they, that was the narrative they told them. That's the bubble they built. So, you know, that's um, your example is such a good one. It's not unique. No, I know it's not unique. (laughs) I've, I've heard of and participated in many groups that don't want to be clear about deadlines or budget. Mm -hmm. And they keep, even when they know at the very beginning, they can't be met. They will still stick to that story and then have a predictable tantrum. And then guess what? There's more time and more money. Could we skip all that? You know, it's it's a lot of anxiety right. that isn't necessary. And how that boss is responding to the truth, if there's a lot of... Um, retribution or tantruming or, you know, who knows what all, then people do stop telling you the truth. And, and then you don't get the truth. And then you get in some big trouble. Yeah. We have examples. Oh yeah. Countless. Yeah. You know, CEOs didn't know what was going on because they had created a culture where nobody would tell the truth. Yeah. Best example is the challenger explosion. NASA. I mean, Uh, Richard, Richard Feynman, I mean, lost life, right? Richard Feynman, Feynman, the physicist. Yeah. uh, I think he wrote, was it six easy pieces or five? uh, One of those, the best analysis I have ever seen hands down on a culture was if you look at that report, there's an appendix in that report. It's his note, his observations. And it is like, so spot on the guy just crushed it. And you're just like, how could you not see this? But yeah. when you're in the you know milieu or whatever of this whole culture and you're stewing in it, it's hard to see it, right? That's why that's why McKenzie gets money because they're like, oh, we're going to hire some consultants to tell us how screwed up we already know we are, right? Duh. What are you going to do? You got a you got a revenue problem or an expense problem? Duh. I mean, like here's our four matrix. I mean, yeah, like fire the boss, right? But you're right. I mean, it's so fascinating how. You sort of get what you, well, you get what you tolerate and you really do build the culture around how you handle this stuff. Cause I mean, you know, we used to always have a saying in engineering, right? If, if the engineers aren't complaining, worry, like really worry because engineers are like Marines. If they complain and complain and complain and complain, right? When they stop complaining, something's really going to go wrong really quick because that, that means they've given up and you're like, Oh, wow. No one's complaining. Wow. No engineers complaining. This is bad. Like, and you just go off the rails because then they, they've lost, they've lost, you've lost, right? Like any culture, right? It's so fascinating. Gosh. Well, wait yeah. to read this book. <laughs> well, <laughs> so yeah. So the book work jerks is it really, the whole reason why I wrote it was that I got the opportunity to coach a lot of people. Mm-hmm. And um, one of the things I found is 
you know, we're always trying to, as, as coaches, we're trying to let people come up with their own words, mm. but a lot of people don't know where to start. So you kind of give them some starter words and then they'll morph them into their own, but they need a little help. They don't, if they knew what to say, they would have done it, but they don't know what to say and they don't know how to approach and they don't know how to manage their own anxiety. So it's a bunch of stuff about how you're going to interact and what are you doing inside your own brain, which is often the story you continue to loop about, ain't it awful? You know, this person's hideous. I can't stand them on and on and on and on. Well, guess what? You're not going to have a very good relationship with them because you're all set up not to. So a lot of, you know, work jerks, most of the chapters are all about, you know, you dealing with you, looking at things you can do to tweak the communication, how to protect yourself if you're in danger. And and there's a whole chapter on narcissism. You brought it up earlier where, you know, frankly, you're probably in danger if you're too close to that narcissist. And so how do you protect yourself? But the last chapter, Jari, so I had this book out to... I think 28 beta readers. Mm. And it was my cousin who said to me, well, I read the book and I didn't find my boss. And I thought, well, <laughs> that's a, that's a good wake up call. Challenge accepted. Yeah. And I thought, you know, because it's not always an individual, it can be the whole stinking culture. And when the culture's rotten, it, everything gets rotten. And it's really hard to carve out your little area of Camelot in a stinky culture. 100%. You know, I had somebody say to me one time, a mid-manager said to me, my job is to protect my people. And I said, oh, God, you know, that's not in the job description of a mid-manager. If that's what's going on, then we've got a real big culture problem. Right. It's basically every semiconductor company I've ever worked for. <laughs> Too bad I'm not that kind of consultant anymore. No. It sounds like Ooh. I could be busy forever. You could be, yeah, you could be busy forever. Well, yeah. Louise, the, Louise, this is just, I mean, could talk to you all day about this. This has been such an awesome conversation. I've loved it. Thank you. So much looking forward to the book. Comes out June 2022. It's called Work Jerks. It's being published by She Writes Press. Yay. You know, gush, 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 gush about the team there, Brooke and all them. Uh, thank you so much. And yeah, keep on doing great work and helping people uh, handle their work jerks. Thank you so much, Jari. It was a pleasure to be with you. Thank you so much, Louise, uh, for being on the show. What a great uh, book that's going to be coming out. Boy, I could have used that in my 20s and 30s for sure. So as promised, here are some actionable insights that I learned from my awesome interview with Louise. Louise says that there are two main questions to ask yourself. How do I manage myself? How do I manage my interactions with others? More effective relationships rest on good management in both areas. And yeah. Um, one of the things I've always learned or been told is that you can control your reaction to a situation, which is entirely true. Um, and also, if someone's making you upset, there you're actually making yourself upset. Of course, they could be pushing every button and trigger or whatever, but just think about it this way. If you're in situations, as Louise mentions, where you know there's some real 
tense situations, you know, ask yourself, how can I de-escalate the situation? How can I move my ego out of it? How can I have some empathy and some compassion? I mean, you don't get walked over, but, you know, de-escalate the situation if you can. It is possible to interrupt those moments when you find ourselves going into fight mode by stopping and taking deep breaths and also knowing what your triggers are and coming up with tactics before they happen. If you have to, walking away is nearly always an option. Hmm. Yeah, you can, um, you can definitely take a pause. Now, um, sometimes that seems a little odd, right? Like, hope I got to leave. Like I take a moment, but I think that's better than saying something you may regret because in the heat of passion, you know, your, your fight mechanism, as she mentions, like you just want to like get some, you know, like, I don't know if it's hurt someone, but literally, you know, you, you feel a threatened and attacked. So ask yourself again, what are the triggers that you have? How can I de-escalate those triggers? And what's my kind of pull the ripcord, I'm, I'm out of here moment so that you can go reset. Understand the culture. Whether you're the leader of a company or you are working with people from different cultural backgrounds, cultural differences and the environment we work together in can have an effect on how people interact. Leaders who invite honesty and respond well to it will have employees who are unafraid to tell them the truth. And <laughs> this is so true. All leaders, if they create it, create their own bubble. And the bubble, we call this the leadership bubble. And the leadership bubble is created by people that want to protect either their ego or they just don't want to hear certain things. So if you're always seen, if you're a leader and you're like, God, no one ever tells me the truth. Well, you're creating that for yourself. So ask some of those questions like, how come I'm the last to know everything? Um, how come no one tells me what's going on? Um, you know, why are we always in panic mode? Probably a lot to do with how you're handling the team. So there you have it. Some actionable insights that I learned from my awesome interview with Louise. Thanks for listening. And we'll see you next time. Thanks for listening to the Entrepreneur Ethos podcast. I hope you enjoyed this episode as much as I did creating it. My hope is that you learn something that can make you a little bit better. If you enjoyed the podcast, please do share it with friends and review it on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. You can also join my email list by visiting theentrepreneurethos.com to get my thoughts on what I'm doing to get better, as well as what I'm working on. You can also pick up my book, The Entrepreneur Ethos, if you want to learn the traits, values, and beliefs that I think we need to build a more ethical, inclusive, and resilient entrepreneur, and frankly, world community. Feel free to follow me on Twitter at The Daily MBA, and let me know if you have any questions or recommendations for a guest you'd like me to talk to. Also, drop me a note if you try anything we talked about on this or any other episode. I'd love to hear what's working for you. Until next time, keep getting better.
Whether you're a world-class athlete or a podcaster like me, we all understand the importance of mental and physical well-being and proper recovery for top-notch performance. That's why I'm excited that Unified Healing is sponsoring this podcast. Unified Healing is a new and super innovative global network of wellness centers powered by Energy Enhancement System, or EE System. If you haven't heard of the EE System, you'll want to listen up. This technology promotes wellness, deep relaxation, purification, and rejuvenation. At hundreds of locations across the globe, access to a center is easy and affordable. Interested in experiencing the EE system technology for yourself? Go to unifiedhealing.com slash bluewire to learn more and find a center near you. That's U-N-I-F-Y-D healing.com slash bluewire. No material or testimonials on the Unified Healing website are intended to be viewed as medical advice or a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified healthcare provider with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition or treatment and before undertaking a new healthcare regimen, including EE system.